Everyone else, let's turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. If you're not familiar with where Hebrews is in your Bible and you're using a, an analog Bible, uh, it's near the back, but not quite all the way. Analog, as opposed to digital. I don't know how else to describe it. <laughs> Paper, Bible. <laughs> we began a, a, a study of Hebrews just last Sunday, and we talked about how the uh, Hebrews is written to show us that Jesus is greater than anything else. And we continue to see that theme played out in our scripture today, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. This is the word of the Lord. A number of, number of years ago, I was uh, on a mission trip in a little country called Macedonia. And uh, we were ministering in a beautiful area where a lot of the college and high school students would go and spend their summers, a place called Lake Ohrid. And Lake Ohrid was a spring-fed mountain lake. You could see 30 feet down to the bottom. Beautiful, And uh, one of the things that a lot of the locals like to do was you climb up these hills, not hills, these cliffs, and then just jump into the water. And it was amazing. And some of these jump points were so high up. And so wanting to interact and engage with the locals and enjoy jumping off of cliffs, uh, a group of, you know, my friends and I decided to try to follow the crowds up there. Not the crowds, but the the adventurers that were making their way up there. And we got directions and people said, no, you follow this path up and you can't miss it. You'll see the spot you're supposed to jump off of. And so we started following up the path and eventually we saw like through a little clearing, a, a little ledge, probably about 10 feet off the water's level. And we thought, well, this must be it. And so we start making our way towards that little jumping point, at which point some other Macedonian locals came by and they said, no, 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 don't stop there. That's not the good part. And they had urged us to come away. We'd stop too soon, they told us. You have to keep going, because the real point was about 30 feet off the water's level. If I had known that, I would have found a different field of ministry that summer. But the point was, once we got up there, it was beautiful. It was amazing. And I couldn't imagine having settled for something much less than that. And, and that's what's going on in these verses. To scared and tired Christians who are fighting a long fight with their neighbors, with their governmental leaders, with their local authorities that are persecuting them. They're rejected and they're thinking, I just want to go back to what worked before. 
We have in the scriptures the message given to, through angels to Moses. We have the Old Testament, and that's good enough, isn't it? And what the author of Hebrews is saying, no, no, no. Don't stop there. You haven't gotten to the good stuff yet. What you're going to see is so much better than where you're stopping. Why? If Jesus is the real thing, why settle for angels who are in every way inferior? You've seen the advertisements, the commercials, whether it's for paper towels or who knows what else, where they diapers, I know, do this a lot, where they show you, here's how our product measures to the leading competitor. Look how much more we can clean up. Look how much shinier your car gets. Look how these compare. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 is doing. It's taking the angels, those exalted spiritual beings, and then pairing them up next to Jesus and saying, in every way Jesus excels. In every way he is better. Don't settle for anything less than Christ. This actually pairs up with the passage we looked at last week in chapter 1 verse 4 saying that Jesus became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. But what he goes on to do is not so much tell us about angels, and if you're not interested in angels and you're like, I don't need to listen to this, tune in, because we're not going to really talk about angels. Because that's not what the author of Hebrews really does. Instead of focusing on the angels, he instead focuses on showing us how great Jesus is with the implication that nothing, no spiritual being or earthly being could possibly compare. Why would you settle for anything less than the best? So the question is not, what are angels like? But rather, what's so great about Jesus? And then if you, if, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but in this passage, he goes through and quotes again and again and again and again the Old Testament. It's, it's a series of proof texts showing us the Old Testament testimony of how excellent Jesus is. There are scriptures that we need to hear the way the original audience would. They would hear one phrase or one verse, and they know everything that goes on around it. They know what that verse is talking about. We need to have that understanding, so we're going to look at the context of these verses. But we also need to understand that this question, how, what's so great about Jesus, and the answer that the author of Hebrews gives us, is just as much for us today as it was for the first century Hebrew Christians. What difference does it make for us if Jesus is so special? The first thing we're going to see is that Jesus is the promised king. He is the promised king. And to understand that, I want to start with the third quote that we get in this passage. We see that the people of God were told to expect a Messiah king. That, the name Christ, if you don't know, Jesus Christ... Christ means Messiah, and Messiah means chosen one, specially appointed one. And the Jewish people for, for hundreds and even thousands of years were expecting a, a special appointed king that would do amazing, wonderful things for them in God's name. So in verse 6, he says, When he brings the firstborn, that's Jesus, into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. The author of Hebrews is quoting a speech from 1,500 years earlier. Moses, where he is predicting how God's people, even though they had arrived in the promised land, he was predicting that they would one day abandon God, rejecting him, and God would punish them through enemy nations. But after a time of punishment and discipline, God himself would then rise up 
and fight for his people, defending them, fighting their battles, and making them safe again. And so in Deuteronomy 32, God says, I sharpen my flashing sword. My hand takes hold on judgment. I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Now, if you're really paying attention, you'll notice that that verse the author of Hebrews quotes, worship him, let all God's angels worship him, didn't show up in there. And the very, very short version of the very, very long story of that is that the author of Hebrews is quoting the Greek translation of Moses' speech in which that phrase, bow down to him all gods, is translated, let all his angels worship him. And so the people of God were expecting God himself to come and fight. God himself to lead an army like a king going into battle. A warrior God who would be worshipped by his servants, his angels. But there is more about that king that was promised. In verse 5, the author asks, For to which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to him like a father, and he shall be to me a son? Well, now he's referencing God's promise to King David. You've heard of King David, David and Goliath. David, the mighty king who no one in all the history of God's people ever lived up to what David did. When God made a promise to David at the beginning of his reign, God promised that a son of David would forever be king over God's people. And he used those words in his promise in 2 Samuel 7. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And though those verses originally applied directly to Solomon, David's son, and to the children after him, the fact that he promised that this son's kingdom would be forever indicates that this is more than just a human king. This king that will lead and deliver God's people will be in the line of David. Which is why the two times we get a family tree for Jesus in Scripture, it makes explicitly clear that Jesus is of David. But this king is more than that. In verse 5 of Hebrews 1, it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is the best one. This is a quote from Psalm 2, which is worth the rest of our time. But to summarize, the nations in Psalm 2 rebel against and reject the rule of God. And God laughs at them. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to the nations in his wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. This is that king, that promised king speaking. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now picture yourself as we've shared who's receiving this letter of Hebrews. It is downtrodden, beaten, persecuted people. And they are bearing the brunt of the rage of the Roman Empire for their faith in Jesus. The author of Hebrews is reminding them, no, no, no. 
You may feel like you are on the losing side of history. You may feel like the world around you is always will be stronger. But no, the king that Jesus is, that God has promised his people, descended from David, is more than human. He is the son of God. God himself risen up to fight the battles for God's people. And though the Roman Empire and every empire before and since laughs at God and schemes against him, God laughs back and says, no, my king will win in the end. For centuries, God's people waited for this king, getting glimpses of him in the warrior David, in the wise Solomon, in the pious Josiah, But none of those kings lasted forever, and none of them fully and totally defeated God's enemies and brought peace until Jesus. He is a king unlike any other. He went into battle without a sword and without a shield. He went into battle stripped naked and exposed. He did not kill his enemies, but instead gave up his life for them. And in doing so, he defeated the true enemies of God's people, not the nations, not the jerks who bully us, not the powers of the world, the real enemies of God's people, sin and death and all the powers of evil were defeated by Christ when he died and rose again. That's the king that God promised his people, the king we've been waiting for. Now for you today, what does that mean? It means Jesus is not only the king that God's people were waiting for, he is also the one through whom God keeps his promises. The way that God keeps all of his promises, even to us, is through Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 1, we read that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, is not yes and no. In him, the answer is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it's through him that we utter amen to God for his glory. People of God, whatever you need, whatever you would seek in other things, God has given you in Jesus. Whether it's angels, whether it's earthly power, whether it's a solid, secure bank account, account or retirement portfolio, whether it's the approval of your peers, popularity, the look you've always wanted, whatever it is, you have that in Jesus. The protection that you've been seeking everywhere else. The enlightenment and understanding that you've been searching for. The peace that you've been looking for. The access to God. The sense of belonging. Everything you've been searching for. In all the wrong places, God has promised and said yes through Jesus. Everything good that God wants his children to have comes in one package, one source, the promised king, Jesus. Why would you settle for anything else, anything less than that? He's not just the promised king. The next contrast begins in verse 7. The author of Hebrews says, of the angels, God says he makes his angels wind and his ministers flames of fire. This comes from one of the Psalms describing God doing the work of creating the sky and the seas and the earth and everything and creating the angels. That's the key word he wants you to notice here, that God makes the angels. Angels are created by God. 
Jesus was never created. He is, in fact, the creator, the eternal king. So he's not just the promised king. He is the eternal king. Verse eight of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Comes from a poetic psalm, which is praising the king of Israel. The king was always human. The king of Israel was a human king. But what he represented was the throne and leadership of God. And that is eternal. Not only the throne, but the son himself. Jesus is eternal. In verses 10 through 12, we read, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish. You will remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. Your years will have no end. And even if we look back at the psalm this comes from and read all the context, we may wonder, what does this have to do with anything? Because it makes no mention of the son, makes no mention of the king or anything that connects it directly to Jesus, to our eyes. But to the Hebrew reader, this psalm was read as a prayer of the Messiah. The Messiah who begins with suffering and then looks in hope at the worldwide kingdom of God and closes with his declaration that no matter what happens, as the world changes and fades and everything we hope in eventually fades away, God does not change. God is eternal. This is what the people of God looked forward to. In fact, in in John chapter 12, when Jesus predicted his death, the Jews who were raised with this belief objected. Jesus said, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, showing them what kind of death he was going to die. And the crowds answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ, which is the Messiah, will remain forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Jesus, how can you claim to be the Messiah we've been waiting for and say you're going to die? The people of God were expecting an eternal king. And the author of Hebrews assures them that they have that. In Jesus eternal not just in lasting forever because you are eternal in that sense the angels are eternal the soul of every human being is eternal in that it will not end but eternal in a sense that we are not Jesus is eternal in the sense that he eternally existed before all things before there was time in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and why it matters Why you should care about that is this in verses eight through nine. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. As we are very aware in our political context, you may have a leader that you like one day and the next day a totally different leader, right? And so everything might be going great. Let's, let's not even talk about politics. Let's talk about your HOA, okay? Let's, let's talk about your, your school teacher. Let's talk about somebody who's, who you like to work with, whose leadership you appreciate and value, and you agree with their policies, you like their decisions, but who's to say that one month, one year from now, that person's still gonna be in charge? There's there's no certainty. There's no continuity. So what if you have a good leader? They might be replaced. 
And what the author of Hebrews is saying is what he's going to repeat at the end of the book in Hebrews 13. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so that those verses before, that scepter of uprightness, Jesus, the good king, the eternal king, loves righteousness and hates wickedness. He's a good leader, and he's not just a good leader that we're hoping is still going to be around for 8, 100, 10,000 years from now. He is eternal, and he doesn't change. And so the things that he values do not change. But more than that, the people that he loves are secure. Because Jesus loves us and does not change. What does it mean about our future? It means that we are safe. It means the one who loved us before the foundation of the world will love us long after the world has ended and been remade. It means that nothing in all creation can separate us from his love. Why settle for anything else? Why settle for anything less than that? He is the promised king. He is the eternal king. The last distinction we see is in verse 13. He is the reigning king. And to which of these angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? When we look at the psalm that this comes from and see how it compares to what angels do, we see that Jesus is the reigning king. Remember last week we saw that the author talked about Jesus being at the right hand of God. And you'll see that again and again through Scripture, talking about Jesus being at God's right hand. And we know that in the, in the politics of those days, to be at the king's right hand is to be second only to the king, to have power, to have authority, to be in charge, to be the one making decisions, creating laws. And as long as the king doesn't overrule you, you have command. Jesus is at God's right hand reigning. The author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 110 which is one of, if not the most quoted Old Testament verse in the Bible. And Jesus tells us that it's about him. The psalm begins like this, Psalm 110, The Lord says to my Lord, this is David writing, The Lord, God, says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. David, the psalmist who wrote this, he's describing the mighty king of God's people, but not just any king. In Matthew 22, Jesus quotes this verse and says, if David calls him Lord, if David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, then why do you call him David's son? You know, we sang that earlier. Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Jesus says that this unusual God-like king in Psalm 110 is him. It's Jesus. And he's not just a normal king. He is David's Lord. The psalm goes on to say that this king is also a priest, something you couldn't do. In the Old Testament, we'll talk about that. We've got a whole chapter on that in Hebrews down the line. But what's fascinating about this picture is look at what God says to the king at his right hand. God says to the king, you sit here and let me go to work. You sit here, let me subject your enemies. I will defeat them. I will call people to come and serve you. This is a king at God's right hand who is reigning, 
He is in charge. He is obeyed. And God is at work to carry out his commands. And to all that, the author of Hebrews then lastly compares the angels in verse 14. Here we have this reigning king. But what about the angels? They're just ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Who's to inherit salvation? That's me and you. The angel's job is to serve. Do you see the comparison? Jesus is the king in command. He is reigning. He is being served. Angels are not worshipped. Angels are not obeyed. Angels are just servants. In fact, the Apostle John in the great book of Revelation, he is given this, this great revelation of the end times by an angel. And look what he does. Look at his reaction to the angel in Revelation 19. The Apostle John, he's tempted to worship him. The angel says, write this, blessed are those who invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at this angel's feet to worship him. And the angel said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Angels are what? The word angel this, this blew my mind when I learned this. In Greek, the word angel is the exact same word as messenger. It's one and the same word. And it's only based on context that we decide in the Bible whether to translate it as angel or messenger. And that should tell you a lot about what angels are and what they do. They are here to serve us. They are messengers of the king. They serve God by doing what? By serving us. So don't be impressed by their power. In fact, that principle applies beyond angels. Because I know some of you are hearing this and you're like, I don't care about angels. I'm not even sure if I believe in angels. Especially not if we're talking about like the little chubby babies with you know, wings that we see on Hallmark cards. First of all, that's not at all what angels look like in Scripture. That's all I'm going to say about that. But even if angels aren't your thing, that principle still applies to anything else that you would look to and be awed by its power. Anything else that you would think is anywhere close to being on level with Jesus, the reigning king. Whether it is great and mighty leaders in our world today, politicians, kings, authorities. Whether it's those with great financial power. Those with amazing influence and reach, those with massive multimedia, social media followings, nothing else comes close. Don't be impressed. And certainly don't put your hope in them. Don't be swayed by them. Don't pattern your life after them. Because do you know what it is? To pattern your life after somebody, to imitate someone that you're impressed by, to try to be like them to follow their ways, to trust their words, that is worship. You are worshiping them. No, you're not bowing down and saying prayers or burning candles to them, but you are worshiping. Worship only the reigning king, who is the eternal king, who is the promised king. Now, you might not think that you want a king, but think about what it is that you do long for. What is it that your heart when you're honest with yourself, what is it that your heart is wanting? You are wanting the comfort of knowing that you can trust whoever's in control. 
You want the joy of knowing that the things you're really hoping for are going to come true. You want the security of an unchanging, unending peace. We spend our lives trying to find those things. We spend our lives trying to make those things happen, a reality. We, we hitch ourselves up to the bandwagon of whoever it is that promises us those things. Whoever it is that says, I will give you all the things you're hoping for. I will give you the security you want. I will give you the peace you're hungry for. I will give you that comfort. I will make your dreams come true. We spend our lives trying to find that. And what Scripture shows us, what the author of Hebrews shows us, is that all those things that we deeply long for and diligently search for are given to us in the kingship of Jesus and nowhere else. Nothing else can take his place in your life. Because in addition to all the ways that he's portrayed here as the reigning, eternal, mighty, promised king, he is also one other thing. He is the king who died. He is a suffering servant who sacrificed himself. He alone can bring you these things because he alone died for you. He alone rose from the grave and he alone stands before God to represent you and to make your case. He is both lamb and lion. The author of Hebrews shines a spotlight on this kingly aspect of him on this amazing, eternal, mighty aspect of Jesus, on his divine nature. Why? Because of his audience. <clears throat> he writes to a weary people. He writes to a people needing the strength to stay faithful. A people who recognize that everything around them is falling apart. And when giving up would be easier, when looking for strength or shelter in something else would be easier, the promise here is that you have a king, a king who goes before you, who does not grow weary, who invites you to wait on him, to trust in him, to rest in him, and who renews your strength. That's the promise to a weary people that you have a king who does all of that and more. Why would you settle for anything else? Why would you settle for anything less than the best? And that's who Jesus is. Let us pray, let us worship Him, prepare our hearts to obey Him. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your goodness to us. We thank You that we, a weary people, need a mighty King, and we have been given that King in Jesus Christ. We thank You that though, though our hearts lead us to find that hope everywhere else, you call us back again and again to Jesus. May we not be distracted, not by angels, not by earthly powers, not by kings and queens, not by politicians, not by influencers, not by wealthy people, not by anyone who promises us what only Jesus can give. Turn our hearts to our King.